Hi, my name is Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast and this is going to be another Criterion Roundup episode where I'll be taking a look at the May releases. Now I do appreciate I'm a little bit behind with these episodes so what I've decided to do is is combine the June and July episode into one purely on the basis that the July spine numbers is only actually uh, one new one and there's a bit was a few re-releases of um, the Jim Jarmusch stuff on Blu-ray so I just thought I'd be able to kind of uh, put them together as it were and we will be able to kind of uh, in the coming months get back on top of things. The only reason really I have fallen behind is I, I, I'm finding that thing as I get older that there just doesn't seem to be enough hours in the day to do everything I want. At the moment I'm kind of producing a short film which I'll be directing in September and it's just taking up so much of my time I haven't had a chance really to record as much as I would like. Okay but after all of that I actually thought May was a pretty damn good month for Criterion releases and things kicked off with spine number 611 which was Being John Malkovich. Seven and a half, right? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Plummer building. My name is Craig Schwartz and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's hands. <laughs> so, honey, you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait and see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. You see the world through John Malkovich's eyes? <laughs> And then after about 15 minutes... And that's not me! I didn't say that! You're spit out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. It was amazing. Where the hell are we? We're about to be just subconscious. Do you think that it's kind of weird that John Malkovich has a portal? I mean, do you think that it might have some sort of significance? What is going on? Huh? I discovered that portal. It's my head! John Cusack. Cameron Diaz, Catherine Keener, and John Malkovich. Malkovich! Malkovich! Be John Malkovich. Hey, Malkovich, be fast! Okay, when I first saw Being John Malkovich back in 99, my initial reaction was the fact that I thought I had just watched one of the most original films I had ever seen. And I haven't actually seen Being John Malkovich for about 10 years. And going back and watching the DVD again, I was quite surprised by how original I still found it to be, which is such a testament, I think, to a film's longevity when so many years after its release, the only kind of thing you can, or the only other kind of films you can liken it to are other films made by or written by Charlie Kaufman and I will get to him in a lot more detail in a bit but how refreshing it seems that you can actually have these kind of voices in cinema people who do kind of really change the way you look at film and the way you think about it it's also quite strange because when I first saw Being John Malkovich I remember finding it really funny and going back these years later 
it wasn't so much the humour that got me, but I actually found it quite be kind of quite a sad, melancholy film. But of course, I'll talk about that in a lot more detail. But for those who haven't seen it, Being John Malkovich is about a unemployed puppeteer called Craig Schwartz, who is in a rather dull marriage to his wife Lottie, played by Cameron Diaz. Craig gets a job working at Leicester Corp House on the rather odd seven and a half floor of an office block. There he meets Maxine, played by Catherine Kinnear, and quickly falls in love with her. One day Craig finds a small door behind a filing cabinet that sucks him into a rather messy tunnel straight into the head of John Malkovich. Through various strange occurrences, Lottie falls in love with Maxine, but Maxine only likes her when she's in the body of John Malkovich. Lottie wants to have a sex change and it all gets even more strange when Craig ends up hijacking John Malkovich's mind and running off with Maxine. Lottie makes contact with the Leicester Corp owner, Dr Lester, who lets her onto a little secret. John Malkovich is a portal which he intends on using to live forever along with his friends. Now enjoying a success as a puppeteer as John Malkovich, Craig and Maxine look to, look to be going fine until Maxine realises she is pregnant. There's one slight complication. All hell ensues and things get very, very strange. Now, I think it's fair to say that Spike Jones's directorial debut has a fair degree of quirkiness to it. Now, before I kind of get on with it, I really want to talk a little bit about quirkiness and its meaning and implementation in film. If you have a character who is in their 20s and you want them to seem quirky, you put them in a pair of Wellington boots and give them an obsession with retro stereos. It's not quirky, it's twattish. Likewise, a film like Scott Pilgrim vs. World, which I absolutely despise, it's not quirky because of the blatant drawing attention to its own artifice and self-aware dialogue. It's simply going to great lengths to show how different it is. And if you were like me and didn't like it, you probably might have got shot down with the comment that you didn't get it. Well, I did get it and I was kind of fully aware of what it was doing. It's just that I absolutely fucking hated it. Now, Being John Malkovich is a quirky film, but it doesn't feel particularly forced or overtly artificial, which is a testament really, I think, to how quickly you are able to embed yourself into this film. For example, there's Dr. Lester's secretary for it, who seems to constantly mishear everything that people say to her, and Dr. Lester, who is convinced he has a speech impediment when in fact he talks absolutely fine, even though he's always apologising to people because he doesn't think they'll be able to understand him. There's also a monkey that lives with Lottie and Craig that has issues relating from a childhood experience. We have the seventh and a half floor, the cameo from Charlie Sheen, and a moment where John Malkovich goes into his own head, which I'm sure is, even if you haven't seen the film, you would have seen some of the stills from it. I think it's one of the most kind of iconic images in kind of recent cinema history. And of course there is the title of the film being John Malkovich. It instantly kind of breaks the fourth wall of cinema. When we watch films, we see the star names kind of embossed and glorified through the marketing, yet very seldom do we watch one and see the star first and the character second. Or, in fact, you might do that um, occasionally, you know. I know for once when I was watching, oh no, when I was watching Wanted, um, I, I just could not get over the fact it was Angelina Jolie. I don't think it's any kind of testament to kind of uh, her acting ability. I just think it's the fact that she was so, in the media so much that I was just so familiar with her. But, for example, when I went to watch The Dark Knight Rises this past weekend, I wasn't sat there going, oh look, there's Christian Bale and Michael Caine. I was thinking there's Bruce Wayne and Alfred. And I think when you have a fictional film, which is essentially supposedly about a real person who actually stars 
in the film apparently about them. It's from the off a very strange concept to get your head around and it invites all kinds of speculation. Why John Malkovich? Is he actually playing John Malkovich in the film or is this a fictional representation of himself? The nature of personality and self is one that is key to being John Malkovich. All the main characters travel into his mind because in some way they want to be more attractive to other people. Through Malkovich they become objects of desire, yet this attraction is only superficial. In the short term, occupying Malkovich gives sexual potency, charisma, success and self-confidence. All traits that the characters think they should in some way desire. In the case of Lottie and Maxine, Maxine will only sleep with Lottie when she's in the body of Malkovich. In the real world, she has no real interest in actual sexual relations with her. In possibly the most bizarre twist in the film, we find out although the body of Malkovich has impregnated Maxine, it was not Craig who was occupying his body at the time, it was in fact Lottie who had snuck in there earlier. Lottie is in both one context the actual father of her child, then as we later find out, a more traditional mother figure. Ignoring the endless Freudian debates this may raise, there is in fact one of the film's most positive and affirming messages. Essentially, being John Malkovich is about being yourself and accepting people for who they are. Maxine thinks she can only enjoy sex in the company of Lottie when she is in John Malkovich. Indeed, she has the same thoughts about Craig, yet she doesn't actually like Craig at all. No one really does. Is in fact Lottie the person as Lottie, not John Malkovich, she really wants. By the end of the film, Lottie has forgotten any plans she has of having a ch sex change and is in fact happy with who she is. However, being dramatic is also a very sad film in many respects. Maxine and Craig start a business selling trips into Malkovich's head. Business booms and indeed Maxine, Lottie and Craig are much like their patrons, desperate for however long to be someone else and escape their own lives. Craig loses himself in his puppets as a way of being in someone else's skin. Lottie relates more to her animals, seeing them than what she does not have in real life. Maxine likes to mess people around, leaving them wanting more, but never really having anything herself. A contestant kind of taps into the same territory of Fight Club, asking pertinent questions about the nature of self in the modern world. In this respect, it could not be more relevant today. The explosion of social networking gives us the opportunity to be exactly what we want. You can be an author or a head chef, just simply say you are, Get away from the computer, you are simply who you are. And I couldn't help but also think about the excellent film I'm Still Here in which Casey Affleck and Joaquin Phoenix fake Phoenix giving up acting to become a rap star. The media leapt on it, mocking his apparent breakdown, unknowing it was all actually a setup. In being John Malkovich, Craig gives up in acting on behalf of John Malkovich and sets him on a career as a puppeteer. The genius of Craig's work is then discovered. Yet the thing is always there is the fact that he has to be a celebrity for people to take notice. As in I'm still here, his rise and fall as it were was reported as a kind of ongoing narrative, the conclusion of what may have actually ended up in a disaster, but it's just so long as it made for good television, no one really cared about the actual person. It is of course the modern day curse of celebrity culture whereby hard work and actual talent is a clip just by name alone. Currently, Paris Hilton is trying to reinvent herself as a DJ with predictably tragic results. It's a shame given how many out there 
will never get the chance to do what she does DJing in front of big crowds. Yet just because she is a name, she's able to simply walk on in front of thousands of people. I'm actually quite pleased to um, report though, she has been roundly booed and even one of the DJ who has been employed to help her has admitted that her set she played in Rio a few weeks ago was actually pre-recorded and um, apparently there's footage of Paris Hilton where she's fiddling with the kind of the knobs of the mixer and the um, the decks and it just it, it's, it's completely pointless just tweaking to make it look like she's doing something. I really sincerely hope that this is the kind of the end of her as a kind of celebrity icon. I just hope this is, people just shove her under the carpet, but I won't start going off about Paris Hilton too much because um, I will probably be here for the next three months moaning about it. Anyway, so going back to Jean being John Malkovich, tonally, I think it's a very hard film to grasp. At times it's laugh out loud funny, um, sometimes very sad and in some degrees utterly tragic. In this respect, I think Spike Jones does an incredible job of keeping it all together. He seems to keep the characters at arm's length to a degree. Much of the film is shot in mid to wide shots and it works given the fact that Craig Maxine and Lottie are perhaps observed at a distance. And I think it works because I think kind of Craig Maxine and Lottie are perhaps better observed at distance because in truth they're not really a typical gang of protagonists that you can really kind of root for. I think it's interesting what they do with Diaz as well because she would kind of become this international pinup. And here she is completely kind of desexualized to an extent. Her hair is ridiculous. She dresses really dowdly. In fact, I think it's actually Kinnear who is the kind of the real siren and sex symbol, which obviously is totally in keeping with her character. But it's hard to really call this a debut in the traditional sense. Jones was very much an accomplished music video director, but he adopts a variety of different techniques, including a handheld aesthetic and some great POV work, especially when they're in John Malkovich. There's a brilliant chasing at the end through kind of various realities and it's one of the best shot and edited set pieces that I've seen in quite a while actually and I think easy trumpeting anything you will find in modern day event cinema which is always kind of like edited beyond comprehension sometimes. It, it, I think it, it's, it doesn't really surprise me that um, Spike Jones has only really made three films including the brilliant adaption because I think were you to perhaps get too many of his films, they might kind of wear a little bit thin. And he's still quite young, I mean, he's only in his 40s, so I certainly think there is a long time for him to um, put a few more films out there on his CV, but I think the ones that he has put out are definitely all worthy of um, special praise. Where the Wild Things are, I was a little bit kind of um, surprised by that, but having gone back to it, I think that's one which is going to grow on me quite a lot um, the older I get. I'd be quite interested as well to... Um, show that film to kids and see what they got from it because uh, it's it's certainly quite a um, a strange one. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know necessarily if I would say it's definitely a kids film or more for adults but going back to being John Malkovich you have to kind of give special praise to the performances and it sounds really bizarre um, or perhaps not so but I actually think this is John Malkovich's best film and there is of course an irony in this because you know is he playing himself you know how hard is that to do but I don't know, I, I, I certainly think that this is his best work and um, it's surprising because um, you think back to that kind of that, that catalogue of great performances that he has and to think a kind of a film which is essentially about him is his best, it, it does seem um, a little obvious perhaps but I certainly think he is really the standout in it for me. I do like um, John Cusack but 
sometimes I find his kind of um, his performance styles a little jarring. What it's like the film Gross Point Blank, which I we ha again I haven't seen that for absolutely ages as well. But I kind of do love Gross Point Blank, but sometimes I just find him a little bit kind of too um, mumbly. But you know, whatever. I still think it's it, it's a fairly good performance. And also, you know, Catherine Kinnear um, does a fantastic job as Maxine because you never quite really understand what her motivations are and how she's really thinking. And it's kind of quite a revelation. I think she has actually has possibly the most complete arc of all the characters at the end because she kind of realises that it's really that she needs to kind of get rid of the kind of the whole superficiality of everything and kind of start liking people for who they are. But the real star of being John Malkovich is Charlie Kaufman, the writer. Now, his CV today is not immense, but it is near perfect, in my opinion. Truly, he is one of the most original voices out there in cinema. I cannot believe that he's only won kind of one Oscar for original screenplay, which um, wasn't actually for being John Malkovich. It was for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But if you compare, if you compare the kind of the, the films he's been nominated aside for Oscars, how any of them are any more original than what he's produced is beyond me. Adaption alone is, you know, once you, we know a little bit about the kind of the story behind adaption, how he was actually trying to adapt the book they are adapting in the uh, in the film to kind of riff on that concept and do what he does. It's absolutely incredible, and as I think a writer. His style of storytelling is the bedrock by which his films are made. They force everyone from the director to the actors to tune into his vision. You simply can't really water down his work. And someone has actually tried to do this um, in the case of George Clooney with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. And in the end, the kind of the end result suffers a lot. And I know he was actually very um, annoyed with George Clooney for some of the cho choices that he's made, but Overall, I think Being John Malkovich is a quite brilliant film. I don't. I, I overall, I think Being John Malkovich is a quite brilliant piece of filmmaking. I think you can dive into it on so many different levels and kind of take out what you will. I wouldn't kind of say categorically that I really, honestly, truthfully know what it's about. I have my interpretation of which I've tried to kind of get across today, but. I dare say I could go back to this film in another 10 years and probably still be surprised how original it is and kind of take something out of it. Like I said, it's quite interesting how funny I found it first time round and how kind of slightly more melancholy and sad I found it this time. So it's definitely a film which will be with us for many, many years. And the other thing as well, it has aged well. Um, there are probably quite a lot of special effects in it and uh, a lot of the kind of the, the of that work is accomplished through just decent filmmaking as opposed to CGI. This doesn't sh doesn't show its age at all, I don't think, being John Malkovich. Um, and I'm glad that Criterion have added it to the collection because I do think it is one of those, well, I say modern, but certainly a film over the past 15 years or what have you that uh, kind of deserves to be kind of singled out and given special praise. Now, the collection that it comes with, it's actually a two-disc edition on DVD and just a single Blu-ray. It comes with a host of special features. Um, there's some behind-the-scenes documentaries, some scenes select, sorry, selected scene commentaries with um, Michael Gondry, which are very interesting to listen to. Um, there's the kind of the infomercials that are played as part of the orientation when Craig goes to work 
on the seventh and a half floor, which were quite interesting as well. And um, a kind of a, 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 a few spoof documentaries about puppeteering, but overall, it's a pretty decent package. I would, I actually got hold of this on DVD. Um, I am reliably informed, however, that the uh, the Blu-ray uh, is well worth checking out because of the kind of the decent sound and the picture quality. It was actually a little bit annoyed because um, the person who feeds my Criterion habit, um, I did ask him to get the Blu-ray and he accidentally picked up the DVD. I will forgive him, but um, if you have got hold of the Blu-ray, let me know uh, your opinion on the kind of the sound and audio quality because it's quite a dark, gritty film to look at. It's um, not very pretty, I don't think, and I'd be kind of quite interesting to see how it kind of scrubs up on Blu-ray. Overall, though, great film, and if you haven't, um, I'm sorry if I've just completely spoiled it for you, but do check it out because I probably haven't done it justice at all. Okay, so next up was spine number 612, which was certified copy, made in 2010. Now, for many of you who listen to the 24 Frames cast, you may have heard my last episode in which I had a little bit of a rant and a winch at people who just talk about the same films over and over again, and mainly seem to kind of focus on American cinema, and I had some pretty interesting feedback from that, which I will uh, talk about uh, in an episode quite soon, because um, lots of people were agreeing with what I said, and a lot of other people were... Um, I had a few kind of quite vitriolic um, emails, which I was expecting, um, sort of accusing me of being a snob and all this kind of thing, but I did actually have one email, and the person who sent it to me has kind of um, kindly allowed me to read out this portion of it, because this is what they put. It's not that I don't like foreign films, it's just a lot of them, or at least the ones that I have seen, seem to revolve around upper, upper middle class types walking around talking about the nature of love and art. Now, I actually laughed out loud at the irony of this email when I watched Abis Kurishtami's 2010 certified copy, because to a large extent, this actually pretty well sums up what this film is about. However, make no mistake, there is far more to think and talk about in certified copy than quasi-intellectual smug musing from instantly hateable wine snobs. Kushtami has long been a darling of world cinema. I've seen Taste of Cherry and was very impressed and certified copy represents quite a big departure from his normal area of work and native Iran. And hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of him as certified copy enthralled me, yet quite bizarrely I could not possibly tell you why. The film is about a writer called James by, by William Schimmel, who is the author of a work called Certified Copy, which argues the point that even a direct copy of a work of art is still in itself a work of art, worthy as the same praise as the original. A woman who is never given a name, but is simply referred to as she in the script, played by Juliette Binoche, attends a reading by James, yet has to leave her as her son is pestering her for something to eat. She manages to get James to come to her shop the next day, and together the pair go for a drive in the country before stopping off for a walk in a small town. Whilst having a coffee, James steps out and makes a phone call, whereupon the shop owner mistakes she and James as a married couple. Upon leaving the shop, the pair talk as if they are actually married. They even bicker over James's attitude toward their son, even though they're not actually married, and she's son is apparently nothing to do with James. Soon enough, they act and talk and even visit a place they claim to have gone to on their wedding night. 
Yet only a matter of hours ago, they'd only just met. So what is actually going on? Well, after one viewing, I could not possibly tell you, although I can safely say Certified Copy is a film that I would easily imagine you will either love or hate. It's impossible even not to have a strong opinion on it one way or the other. In my case, I loved it for reasons I'll explain a little bit more. So much of our film watching is ruined by the weight of prior knowledge. I don't necessarily mean spoilers, seeing them in kind of trailers or viral videos or things like that. But for the most part, Hollywood in particular sticks to a very rigid set of conventions and rules. Seldom do studios greenlight projects that they see as a perceived risk. And when they do, obviously you have films like kind of being John Malkovich. But over time, therefore, for those who don't stray too far from American shores, an inevitable familiarity grows based on strict conventions. Certified copy will alienate those people because it makes no attempt whatsoever to explain or even to justify what it does. It just does what it wants. And if you don't like that, then there is your problem. Were I to liken to anything else, I would say it reminded me a bit of Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, crossed with last year at Marienbad. Now, Last Year at Marienbad is a really interesting film because when I first watched that, I fucking hated that film. I was sat there, I think I tweeted out something um, like, what on earth is this film about? And I remember Hunter from the Midnight Movie Cowboys podcast tweeted me back saying, um, maybe I met you met you last year at Marienbad and maybe I didn't or something like that. And I was like thinking, you know, who, who fucking cares? I don't, I, don't, I don't care. And then I sort of went back and I watched that film again. And I thought, actually, no, do you know what? I love this film. And um, I, I had it on DVD, um, Criterion, and I ordered it on Blu-ray, and I watched it again. And I was like, actually, no, do you know what? I love this film. And it's, it, Last Year at Mary Band is one of those films where you kind of almost feel a little bit kind of um, twatty for saying that you love it because it is such a kind of a hard, cerebral film to get into. But it's certainly one which I think kind of, it's the kind of the mystery of it and the uh, the... The aloofness of it in a way is what makes it so appealing and I sort of feel the same way about certified copy and I can imagine what a total utter nightmare it was to try and market this film so what I'm going to do now is actually play the trailer for the film that I saw um, before the screening of another film a couple of years ago good morning I'm so sorry I'm late I would blame the traffic but uh, I walked here Some of you may know that art is not an easy subject to write about. It's my intention to try and show that the copy itself has worth, in that it leads us to the original, and I believe this approach is not only valid in art. Ah, buongiorno. Buongiorno. I'd really like just to get out of this town for just a little while. I have an idea. I can take you to a place you find it interesting. I can't believe you're sitting in my car. I mean it. Would you like to invite me for a cup of coffee? She mistook you for my husband. And I didn't correct her. Obviously, we make a good couple. There's a golden tree inside. The bride and groom come to promise to be faithful forever. If they're happy and enjoying life, then we should congratulate them. Stop teasing me. The thing that'll keep that marriage alive is care and awareness. Awareness of what? Things change. Everything changes. A blossom turns to fruit. And then? 
My family lives their own lives and I live mine. What kind of philosophy is that? It's just not reasonable to expect us to feel the same way that that married couple do. C'est la seule chose qu'elle demande, c'est que vous marchiez à côté d'elle et que vous posiez votre main sur son épaule. The whole purpose of life is to have fun. <laughs> now, I think you can tell that this film is trying to be sold as a kind of feel-good romantic comedy. Um, aimed at people like my parents, I suppose, and I don't mean that in a um, complimentary way. Yet, genre and convention are two things that simply don't seem to exist, or at least interest Kurosami, as he uses James and the woman slowly to explore the mechanics of her relationships that may even not actually exist. And in a sense, I came away with him that he was exploring the universality of relationships between people. Kind of all couples have petty arguments and you think that you're the only ones and yet when you talk to other people you find out that hey presto they're having exactly the same kind of conversations you are and I may be well off the mark and further viewings will no doubt expand further but I sort of felt that there was a comment being made here that really the kind of the problems that exist between people are on a global level fairly similar now I also felt there was a running theme of regret. We see other young couples getting married and that James and the woman interact with and all these are kind of painful reminders of earlier happy times and they indeed seem to have forgotten the reasons why they are together in the first place. Their young love has been replaced with jaded, worn out souls. Again, is it making kind of slightly more universal statements kind of through these two people? I, I don't really... I, I don't think I can really kind of get into it until I've, I've watched it a couple more times. And perhaps with last year at Merry and Bad, I might have the reverse for this because I instantly like this film. But I might find myself disliking it the more I kind of perhaps see that it has a kind of an apparent shallowness. Perhaps I'm trying to attach too much meaning and reason to it. I simply don't know. But whatever you can say about it, I think it is an absolutely beautiful film to watch. Tuscany is the type of place really that cinema was made for. And... It, it looks like the kind of place where I, I, I would probably, I don't know anyone who could actually work there. It would just be too beautiful to, to bother with something horrendous like having to do a job. You just want to kind of sit around all day drinking wine and debating trivial issues. But director of photography, Luca Bugazzi, cast a film in a kind of a hazy afternoon sun and you can virtually feel the fresh air and the aromas of the town. Yet it never seems to wander down the path of tedium as well. Yes, the conversations may be a little highbrow at time, but because you're expecting something to happen and don't really know what is going on, you prepare yourself for a revelation or a climax that although never really truly comes, it kind of plays in your head over and over for days. Although I would not go far as to say this film is a kind of a modern masterpiece or anything like that, as I think it works better as a kind of intriguing head spinner that once you kind of tune into, you may find yourself completely falling in love with. And again, it's one of those types, perhaps it, you know, it is kind of thematically linked to kind of being John Malkovich in this kind of um, how I suppose it encourages you to kind of look deeper and think about it. Um, 
The collection wise, a brilliant Blu-ray this time around. Um, really uh, love the picture. I think um, Blu-ray does a credit to the locations. It's all shot on location as well, so there's no kind of set or anything like that. There is a film called The Report that Chris Dye made in 1977, which was quite interesting, kind of deals with similar themes. And um, an interview, um, a Italian documentary about the making of the film, which wasn't very interesting to be particularly honest with you. And there's also a film essay by the critic Geoffrey Cheshire, which I haven't actually read yet because um, I didn't, it was strange because it sounds really kind of like uh, arrogant, I suppose, but I kind of had my kind of interpretations of it and I'd prepared this episode and I didn't really want to kind of um, perhaps have my uh, feelings and thoughts of it ruined by uh, reading what someone else had to say about it. So I've decided to kind of stick with my own interpretation, but nevertheless, a really kind of interesting film. I can pretty much guarantee you won't be seeing this one discussed on any Facebook groups or any kind of blogs anytime soon. So if you have seen Certified Copy, do get in contact with me and let me know what you thought of it. Okay, so next up was Spine Number 613, which was Ingmar Bergman's 1951 film, Summer Interlude. Now, Ingmar Bergman is a director who people will regularly call a genius, yet I wonder how many people have actually watched that many of his films. He is something of a stalwart of the Criterion Collection, and rightfully so, because Bergman is a genius and truly deserving to be regarded as one of the cinema's greats. My own experience of Bergman came many years ago, and the film that I saw first was The Seventh Seal. Now, I had very much heard about him before and considered, without actually seeing his work, that he would be some kind of art house bore with weird narratives and concepts way over my head. How wrong I was, and many continue to be, The Seventh Seal amazed me, not only because it was not a load of ponderous nonsense, it was funny, moving and thought-provoking, and the beginning of a love affair that has lasted for many years. Both Summer Interlude and Summer with Monica, the next one we'll be talking about, are linked thematically. Both feature explorations of young love, and it is Berman's ability to cut straight to the bone of the human experience that makes them so utterly fascinating. Summer Interlude focuses on the story of Marie, a successful ballerina who one day is sent a diary belonging to her ex-lover, Henrik, with who she spent one intense summer with, falling in love during her youth while she was staying at her aunt and her friend Erlen, who she refers to as her uncle. In the present, Marie and current boyfriend David, a journalist, feel that she is distant and remote. Allowing him to read the diary, he begins to understand why perhaps Marie is the way she is. Now, I won't expand much more on the story, and so that summer interlude, like its title suggests, is perhaps Bergman on slightly more conventional ground, and indeed a little more formulaic than I first actually imagined. Made in 1951, it was something of a golden year for film, and Summer Interlude must have seen a fairly drab compared to the likes of The Day the Earth Stood Still, and American in Paris, and even The Lavender Hill Mob, to name but a few of just some of the films that were actually released that year. I tweeted that I thought it was Bergman's brief encounter, and indeed the two share a great deal in common. However, unlike Lean's film, Bergman does not shy away from a far more sexually explicit element of such an intense relationship, yet does what I would contest, turn the experience of the characters into something slightly more positive. Yet Summer Interlude is so different from the films of the time because it is very much a female-driven piece. Indeed, when we do see Henrik in the various flashbacks throughout the film, he is ever so slightly a bit of a pain in the ass. Jealous and childish around Monica, it is at first hard to see the attraction from her to him. She even spent a great deal of time mocking him for his whining. But as the story progresses, you get a genuine sense there is something really building between them. 
indeed many point towards some interviews the moment when Bourbon began to favour female protagonists over men, seeing the female psyche is infinitely more interesting than that of males. This is a very personal story to Bergman because it was apparently based on his own kind of summer uh, affair in which uh, he met a girl who would eventually contract polio and I think there is much of Bergman in Henrik. He is so much more restrained and is liberated by Marie who through a great deal of prodding allows him to enjoy life in a way that he never could before. Some people say it is not one of Bergman's most sophisticated of screenplays but, and I think they're suggesting that in some way the film is quite shallow, and I don't really agree with this at all, really. Summer Interlude is about a moment in time that affects someone for the rest of their life. It is a deeply personal tale, yet one that resonates with us all. We all have these kind of intense relationships in our youth. They are more than likely coupled with regret as they are happiness, but most importantly, we learn from them. Like many of Bergman's early works, the film story flickers from back from the past to the present, representing how important the past plays in our lives and help us better navigate the present and future. One of the eternal, one of the alternative titles for the film was Illicit Interlude, perhaps a reference to the overt sexuality of the film. Maria and Henrik lose their virginity to each other and there's also an implication that she slept with the person she calls Uncle Erland. He's many years her senior and he lusts after it in quite a kind of disgusting way. Although, just to reaffirm, they are not actually related. I would contest this is as emotionally a complex story as anything in Bergman's career. A sense of past pain and regret haunt Marie and kind of, in a way, play into her kind of isolation. And indeed, isolation is a recurring theme throughout Bergman's work. And confronting her past and allowing her new boyfriend to understand what this means to her gives a reason for her apparent aloof and distant attitude. I think it also deals with the theme of maturity as well, something I'll get to deeper into summer with Monica, indeed nostalgia and how we deal with it. I recall with great fondness the summer of 2002, it was a summer where there was a World Cup and there were long days spent around the pub and a hint of a romantic affair with someone. Now, they were carefree times, yet when I think about them more, you can see the cracks, the pain in the ass that was living at home with my parents, the constraints of being in a small in a small village, the realisation I would never be able to afford a house in my area, the job I worked giving many hours for, for a boss who couldn't really care less that I did or didn't. And I think what Bourbon does is that, or to me at least, is telling us to kind of cherish these memories but not dwell on them too much, learn from the past and move on. And one of the things that you can't really deny in this film is its visual splendour. Filmed in Stockholm's outer archipelago, the landscape has a mixture of pristine landscape and wilderness, and coupled with Bergman regular going to fight show on cinematography duties, the landscape has a bleak kind of beauty to it. In the flashbacks, the sun is glaring and you can feel the heat of those lazy afternoons. In a way, I think it, going back to kind of the idea of memory, I think it kind of visually kind of represents those kind of the, the perfection that we try and attach to the past sometimes. It does seem that, you know, when we think of happy memories, we don't kind of we just assume that the kind of the weather was pretty. I think you know it, the reality was that I've been pissing with rain, but kind of in a way, I think time makes us kind of distort the past into the narrative that we want it to be. Because in the present as well, when we see Marie, the visual palette is a lot darker and brooding, and 
we often see Marie in very kind of confined spaces, but when she's out in the um, flashbacks, it's all very kind of wide open, as if the kind of the world is open to infinite possibilities. And I think this kind of this this, this juxtaposition of claustrophobic and kind of open shots is a perfect visual analogy for how Marie feels about the world. And of course, this being Bergman, it does look incredible. Well, I'd have one criticism of the film. I think it does kind of veer into kind of fairly stereotypical territory when we see Marie um, working as a ballet dancer, the kind of the lovely darlings around her, making a big deal out of everything. But overall, I thought this was a really moving film. It doesn't seem to be one of the kind of the, mo the more kind of well-known um, Bergman films, especially when you look through the Criterion Collection. There's so many titles in there that just kind of instantly jump out. But I personally really enjoyed this one. Now, it doesn't come with any um, features on the disc other than, I think, a trailer or something like that. But definitely pick this one up on Blu-ray because uh, it really does do justice to the locations. Okay, so next up was another Bourbon film, which was Spine Number 614, Summer with Monica. Every year, I seem to make a discovery, a film that I have never seen before, that when it finishes, I sit in awed silence, generally wondering why I have not seen it before. In recent years, there's been Army of Shadows and High and Low that have knocked me for six. This year, I think I may have already found my discovery of the year, which is Bergman's 1953 masterpiece, Summer with Monica. Now, before seeing this film, my favourite one of his films was The Virgin Spring. And I think I can safely say this has been trumped and possibly, I feel, with repeat viewings, Summer with Monica might just become one of my favourite films of all time. Certainly were I to draw up a top 100 now, I would it would most definitely be in there. Now, what is this film about? Well, Monica, played by soon-to-be Bergman regular Harry Anderson, works a dead-end job in a miserable part of Stockholm. She wants to get out and enjoy life, but is chained to her existence and her abusive father. Harry, played by Lars Ebsen, also has a dead-end job. Not quite as free-willed as Monarchy, he is not adverse to getting out of the rut he finds his life in. Harry and Monica begin to see each other and after some crap from their respective bosses, jump on Harry's father's boat and head off into the archipelagos to do exactly whatever they please. At first things go well, they enjoy sailing around, having sex, drinking and doing whatever they want. Then the food starts to run out and they bump into an old enemy from home and Monica realises she is pregnant. So it's back to Stockholm for marriage and responsibility. Only Monica has other ideas. She simply can't sit back and accept that her life is now about conformity, marriage and raising a child. Now again, Gunnar Fischer is back on hand as DOP and the world he and Bergman present is one of a stark industrial urban Europe. The docks look out onto bodies of water with a suggestion of escape, yet quickly we are thrust into the long days and hard work that Monica and Harry have to contend with. It's the classic setup of youth wanting to escape from the conformity of modern life. I suppose it's in a way it's the precursor of films like Bonnie and Clyde and most recently things like Into the Wild. For the young and idealistic there has always been a rich vein of movie gold and I think kind of like there's something about urban existence where it does breed familiarity and you get this sense of when you see the same things day after day after day that your life has not moved on in the way that you would have thought and 
I, I, it's a very kind of immature thought to think that when you're young, you think you'll be moving around doing loads of things. And in reality, when sort of life kicks in, it, it does become about routine and to an extent uh, very boring unless you kind of have other things going on in your life other than work. Now, Monica's life is for the most part completely awful. Her co-workers grope her and at home, her father is an abusive drunk. Harry is in an equally dead-end job and is picked on for the smallest of misdemeanours. Now, shot mainly on sets, the urban-based scenes in Stockholm are the very thing teenage dreams are crushed in. They escape the poverty and the misery for purely selfish reasons. And there is a kind of an essence, I suppose, in these characters where Monica in particular, she has a kind of a view of the world based on what she sees at the cinema in American films. Because, you know, there are, she does go to the cinema quite a lot and she, you know, she seems to really enjoy it. But you know, there's a line in the films where she says, I'd like to kill all those who want to hold us back and make us cruel. And it's kind of quite defiant very movie, very written dialogue. And in a way, these characters remind me of the type of people that Bruce Springsteen sings about, especially in kind of songs like The River. You know, where he, he paints these kind of characters who are young and idealistic, who kind of feel that they have the whole world at their feet, and then very quickly find those kind of dreams begin to crumble away, and reality kind of kicks in. And Bergman decides to, or I suppose, explores the idea of what happens when this kind of ideology meets with the real world because Monica and Harry get the chance to get away from all this and they head out onto the open water and although their boat is not huge they have everything they really need or do they as the film unfolds and their relationship blossoms some of Monica demonstrates that such kind of romantic carefree existences only really exist in films or are fantasies and this is not one of those films. I This is a film where they can't really get away from reality because there are consequences for their actions. And I think before I get into the story in a little more detail, it's worth taking some time out just to talk about one of some of Monica's most surprising elements. In the years following Summer Interview, Berman had become more interested in female characters than male. And Monica is to some extent an early feminist icon. She is sexually aware and shockingly for the 50s, quite happy to run around naked and be shown doing this by Bergman. And it's mad to think that this film is 1953 because it makes Hollywood and indeed kind of like British cinema seem kind of daft with their kind of prehistoric moral conventions that played such an important part in the sense of those times. Interestingly enough, this film was picked up and kind of resold in America as being a kind of soft porn experience. And, um, Monica is completely the driving force of the narrative and although in a way want them to kind of enjoy it we do begin to see that perhaps her view of life is completely wrong. After finding out she's pregnant her idea is to simply stay sailing around the various islands yet she quickly she becomes quite mean and demanding on Harry. She complains about the food, she has no money. The illusion of freedom in the modern world is quickly shattered. You simply cannot behave like this in a real world. And again, it goes back to this kind of like the dialogue of the film being very, at times, seeming as if it's being ripped straight out of a Hollywood film. She plays out this kind of existential youth revolt, yet the film does not allow her to simply run off into the sunset and do as she pleases. In one scene, Monica robs a lump of meat from a table in a house and kind of runs off into the bushes and onto the boat where she kind of gnaws at the meat, chastising Harry for not doing enough to help her. And it's... Although it's kind of quite a humorous scene in a way, 
you sort of look at it and you realise how kind of completely desperate and ridiculous their situation is. So upon when they decide to return to Stockholm, the pair are soon married and Monica gives birth to their child, which she completely ignores, allowing Harry to take care of it and moans at him for having to leave her alone whilst he works. Here, just about every Christian expectation of a female is subverted. She rejects her child, sleeps with other men and shows no interest in family values at all. Yet where at first we admired her kind of carefree attitude, now we kind of can't stand her. Her nihilism is simply wrong. Harry, are not happy to, at conformity, knows that there is more to life than just sailing around and in their child has something that is far more important than her. And here really the kind of the film kind of changes tack because I think Harry really becomes a figure of pity and indeed there's a lot to admire in him. He takes care of the child yet in the most moving scene in the film after Monica has left him recalls with great fondness his time with her in a flashback. He is not weak for following suit and simply running away from his responsibilities. He recognises the fact that this is the real world and she has been living in a fantasy she can run from it, yet he can't. It is one of the great truisms of our lives. And in, sometimes when we watch films, we want them to do what we don't do. But Bergman gives us a glimpse of all this and pulls it back into something that we recognise, which is reality. And one that we and Harry know is more likely the way our life is going to turn out. I also think this is visually one of my favourite Bergman films. The contrast between the urban scenes and the parts of Monica and Harry standing around the archipelago are quite simply stunning. On the one hand there is the grim and oppression of the city, the next the long summer days and the boat riding around in the bright sunshine. It is visually I think every bit as iconic as films from the kind of the youth explosion of the 60s, yet to me Summer of Monica at least is far better looking than anything from this period. Soon Hollywood go, would go wider and more colourful than ever before, yet Bourbon and Fireship pushed the bounds with the film grabber and even more with the simplicity of black and white photography and the Academy ratio. There is a sense that there is something waiting around the corner for them, not some kind of monster, but the realisation that the dreams have just led to squalor. It's no surprise that the film goes from wide open spaces to claustrophobic urban hell. It's the same kind of visual analogy we saw in Summer Interlude, and it, perhaps it might even be a slightly kind of clunky, very obvious one to make, but it certainly works, and we, like them, get to dream just for a little while. Summer of Monica would go far in endorsing the view of Scandinavia as being a sexually open society. Monica, with her unshaved armpits and lack of makeup, doesn't conform to the traditional male view of a woman, especially when we kind of have kind of like icons like Monroe doing the rounds at the time. I don't think it's any surprise to me to learn that Summer of Monica was a huge influence on Jean-Luc Godard and the rest of the French New Wave, and indeed I'm pretty certain Breathless must owe a great deal to it. To me, Summer of Monica is as close as I can imagine to a near-perfect film. The performances are all quite brilliant in their own way. It's stunning to watch and walks a fine line between the demands of escapist entertainment and the truth of modern life. It is youthful rebellion that predates the 60s. Monica does what the feminists would not have done until an entire decade later. It director makes the new wave of Arthur Penenko seem like dinosaurs behind the curve, not ahead of it. It is a film that is far ahead of its time and it's very bittersweet for sure, but to me Summer of Monica is now for at least my favourite Bergman film 
and it won't come as much surprise to you when I kind of do my um, monthly criterion pick that this would have to be my number one choice for May. It comes with a host of really interesting speeches. Um, there's a half-hour documentary um, which is introduced by Martin Scorsese talking about the film. There's interviews with Harriet Anderson, um, an introduction by Birdman himself, a pretty fantastic booklet as well, um, and some essays from Jean-Luc Godard in it, in which he kind of... Um, interviews Bergman and himself and really I think this is definitely the package as well I think simply on a, a kind of a restoration point this really is a fantastically beautiful looking film um, but Criterion again you know deserve our kind of um, respect and acknowledgement for what they do with these because really you sort of wonder where the motivation kind of lies for a lot of the studios to go back and uh, touch up these old films they've done a fantastic job in making it look as uh, vivid and as clear as possible but you know there's again there's no sort of artificial um additions it's just basically working with what was there but overall summer of monica will be my pick for may um i noticed there was a sale on barnes and noble and uh, i think it was something like 20 dollars or something to buy and i would say that was a bargain because if this film cost 50 dollars, i would still say it'd be worth every single penny so check it out and um if you have seen summer of monica do let me know what you think of it and if you're you know um what you think about Bergman in general, you know, what your kind of favourite films. Um, I'm, I'm considering actually doing a separate uh, line of shows in which I'm going to go through all the Eclipse box sets. And I know the first one was an early Bergman and I've seen all those films before and they're really brilliant and I'm thinking of uh, going back and going through all those. So hopefully in the near future there might be some more Bergman coming your way. But that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. As I said, the June and July episode for Criterion is going to be kind of condensed into one so which hopefully gets kind of um, back on track so I realise it's um, it's a bit poor really talking about um, releases that came out in May here in July but you know as I said I've got a lot on at the moment and uh, sometimes podcasting or as much as I enjoy it it just has to go, kind of go on the back burner for other things especially when it comes to kind of making a film because the uh, the budget of my film um, has increased quite a bit actually in the past couple of months with a few additions and uh, I am having to kind of uh, dedicate a lot of time to it because basically I've spending other people's money to be honest and uh it's it's there's a an added pressure when um you have got other people to let down other than yourself so hopefully i will be in contact soon with the next episode in these criteria roundup i hope you enjoyed it if you want to email me you can do at 24framescast at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at 24framescast and you can go to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com many thanks for listening and i will speak to you soon bye